Welcome to the 399th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a researcher's roundtable on COVID calls, and I welcome KAIST graduate students Hyunsu Chung and Hyuna Kyum to talk about their new research on COVID. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID calls episode at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 14th, 2022, there are 6,259 deaths from COVID-19 in South Korea, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There have been 1,803 deaths from COVID in South Korea in just the past 30 days. It's important to note that that's actually one third of the total count of deaths from the disease throughout the entire pandemic in South Korea. It's been a very difficult month here. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Naomi Henderson. This appeared on Legacy.com and was also featured on the Faces of COVID Twitter site. Naomi Henderson, CEO of Riva Market Research and co-founder of Riva Training Institute, age 77, passed away on December 21st, 2021 from complications related to COVID. She was vaccinated. Naomi was born in Alexandria, Louisiana on January 2nd, 1944, the second of four daughters to Joseph and Anna Hairston. As the daughter of an army officer, she grew accustomed to traveling and starting fresh in new places. She traveled across the United States six times by car and across the Pacific Ocean twice to live in Asia. Naturally creative, Naomi wrote and performed plays in elementary school for the neighborhood families on her front porch, using bedsheets as curtains to ensure her entrances were dramatic. She attended Roosevelt High School in Washington, D.C., and received undergraduate degrees in psychology and education from D.C. Teachers College and a master's in education from American University. She was a guest lecturer at George Washington University, Georgetown University, University of Georgia, and Hood College. She was excited to continue her education and before becoming ill had recently announced that she would be pursuing her doctorate in 2022. She served as a master trainer, teaching researchers the art and science of rigorous qualitative research techniques, writing curriculum for public and custom courses, and fulfilling her dream of leaving the industry better than when she entered. Naomi led more than 6,000 focus groups and interviewed more than 60,000 respondents in groups or individually receiving national recognition as a master moderator. She has been featured by Forbes magazine, The New York Times, with TV appearances including CBS Evening News, PBS Health Week, and NBC Dateline, along with several podcasts. She married the love of her life, Luke Henderson, in 1964, and their shared joy of life, travel, and art. Luke and Naomi taught themselves to ice skate, later mastering pairs ice dancing just for the fun of it. They frequented the Cabin John ice rink in the 1970s. Naomi was an original, a one-of-a-kind bright light in the world. She could make anyone feel like they were the most important person in the room. Loving, generous, and thoughtful, she made an exceptional contribution to any activity or group she was part of. Her warmth drew people to her, and though she didn't have children, she was a surrogate mother figure to many, as well as a loving aunt sister, daughter, colleague, and mentor. Her absence will leave a great void in many lives. 
Naomi was preceded in death by her beloved husband, Luke Henderson, her father, Joseph Hairston, and her sister, Nancy Falm. The arts were an essential part of Naomi's life. She enjoyed performances at the Kennedy Center and other local venues and was excited that exhibitions and performances were opening again in all genres. With this in mind, in lieu of flowers, please consider donating to the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And you can find that at www.uarts.edu. The obituary of Naomi Henderson, who died December 21st, 2021. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. This is one I've really been looking forward to on the calendar. Let me introduce my guests today. Hyuna Kum is a master's candidate at the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy here at KAIST, the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. She recently finished her master's thesis titled Making Waste Acceptable and Invisible, the COVID-19 Pandemic and Material Politics of Plastic Waste in South Korea where she argues that plastic waste has not just increased in Korea during COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic, but also a time when the government both allowed discard of disposable plastics and invisibilized the infrastructure to treat those wastes. She wants to expand her area of research into revealing unequal relationships around waste and its impacts on different beings, humans, and non-humans. My second guest is Hyun Soo Jung, master's candidate also in the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy of KAIST. She's interested in data sharing during COVID-19 and her internship experience at the United Nations Development Program Seoul Policy Center inspired her to study public-private partnerships driven by information and communication technology. Her master's thesis is titled A Study of Co-Production for Information Sharing During COVID-19, focusing on the case of citizen-developed map services in South Korea and her study focuses on how Korean civil society's action of information sharing driven by open government data influenced COVID-19 policy in South Korea. Hyuna Kyum and Hyun Soo Jong, welcome to COVID Calls. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us. I'd like to start the way I usually do to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there. So with that in mind, uh, Hyun Soo, let me start with you, please. Hi, uh, my name is Hyun Soo Jung, and I'm calling from Seoul. Uh, so today's daily case in Seoul is around 930, and for the past week it has been around or a little less than 1,000 cases, uh, whereas until last week it was a lot more than 1,000 cases. And Seoul is uh, one of the top cities having high number of cases in South Korea. What does that, that mean in terms of what you can do in Seoul? right now, Hyunsu, restaurants, everything is open? Are there restrictions uh, that are visible right now? Anything that's changed? Uh, I guess the re restrictions in Seoul is not that much different from other cities. Uh, like still, we can go to the restaurants until 9 p.m. with four people. But I think today the restrictions are a little uh, loosened so that six people can start mm -hmm. together. I don't know from today or tomorrow. but. Yeah, I guess situation in, in terms of the restrictions are similar to other cities, I guess. Fiona, let me bring you in as well. And uh, you and I are in the same building uh, for full disclosure. So you and I are having the same experience, I guess, of you know, COVID as an urban phenomenon here in Dijon. But I'm curious you know, what you're keeping track of as you think about how the virus is proceeding here in South Korea. Wow, thank you for the question. Actually, I've looked up to the news media reports about the Korea as a whole, and I found out that uh, the Korean government is expecting that the Omicron variant would become dominant uh, around uh, 21st of January, which will be in the next week, uh, since over 50% of the confirmed cases by then would be infected by the Omicron. And I think this, uh, with this trend, the government is ex even expecting to have around uh, 30,000 daily confirmed cases by the end of February. Uh, and since we have the, uh, we South Korea have the biggest, uh, national holidays in the early February, I think the government will maintain or even strengthen the social distancing measures by then. And in Daejeon here, uh, 
we are, uh, we've been getting the text messages by the KAIST COVID uh, response uh, team. And recently we had uh, six daily confirmed cases inside the campus. So I think students and all, all the members here at KAIST are, are realizing the, uh, the situation is getting a little bit more serious. So I would like to yeah, brief in that way. When I share that information with colleagues of mine in the United States that we get these text messages and I can see the testing center from my office, um, they're very impressed by that because uh, that's not always the case in the United States, this very efficient track and trace. But now, you know, two years into this, and what you're describing, Hyuna, is really chilling. I mean, the case rates going over 7,000 in December and that death rate really being quite staggering um, in the overall context of the pandemic for Korea. And now we're going to potentially triple or quadruple that number going into next month. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm sort of curious, uh, Hyunsu, let me ask you about this. I mean, how do you think people are going to react to that? You've been following this pandemic very closely now since the beginning. Um, so I guess by the time goes by and pandemic unfolds, people are having more fatigue every day, I guess. So even though like there are like 7,000 cases, I guess like just from my personal point of view, people are less surprised when we had the first thousand cases because people are just getting used to it. And we know we can still function even though there is pandemic. So like even though like there are 5,000 cases or 7,000 cases, people still go to the office and work. Whereas like people try to remain inside when there was like less than a thousand cases. So I guess that's how uh, we're going through. Like we are learning to like kind of live with that. I mean, of, of course, everybody wants to end this pandemic, but somehow we're also finding our way to uh, live with it until we can actually uh, find the end of the pandemic. So what do you, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Hyuna, what do you, what do you think? I mean, it is the, the track and trace systems here in Korea are as effective as anywhere else in the world. Um, but I, I do worry about that fatigue and that that somehow as things get worse here in South Korea, if those death rates go up, you know, people might become more alarmed. I mean, I think that normalization is right, but I wonder if people will. And of course, uh, overcoming the health system is the greatest concern in all of this. Right. I mean, I do agree with uh, Hyunsu, especially pointing out that people are less and less becoming alarmed by the number, what the number presents as the daily uh, confirmed cases or death rates. But I, these these days, I think people are more uh, uh, focusing about the vaccines, especially uh, I uh, personally, uh, because I uh, meet you a lot, Scott, and uh, the younger people, young generations, like you're uh, at the age of your son, is heaven still get vaccinated. So I think there are uh, still uh, important discussions around uh, the vaccination about the people who haven't get vaccinated yet. Uh, so the elementary school students who have to go to the uh, school in the starting semester are still uh, having the worries about uh, not getting vaccinated yet. So. I think, uh, yeah, people are getting used to this situation and getting fatigued, but more and more we are becoming in the stage that uh, how, what kind of people are still left out. Uh, so, yeah, I think that would become more important. You know, let me stay with you. I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind, to share a personal memory of this COVID era. And I, I call this kind of the impossible question because... It's all so dense. But is there a particular moment that stands out for you that defines this time? Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, because uh, the strongest, one of the strongest memory during the pandemic for me uh, is also linked to what I just uh, wanted to bring it onto the table. Because personally, I remember my mom experiencing some level of depression. Uh, she is naturally very bright and cheerful person. And she and she's a housewife uh, stays at home, but used to meet her friends from time to time. Uh, however, during the pandemic, uh, as her friends find it risky to meet in person, she started to spend literally most of her time uh, at home with my younger brother or by herself. So by the time she told me that she feels lonely, not as usual, I realized there are actually a lot of uh, media reports being made on housewife depression. 
uh, as the boundary between family care and rest became blurred, uh, many women staying at home were experiencing depression. So as in this personal experience of my mom, I started to realize that the disaster, the COVID-19 pandemic does not affect people equally. So now we all learned, so I cannot say it's uh, my own finding or experience, but still the fact that disaster affects the people who are most vulnerable in our society, not only housewives, but uh, sanitation workers or call center workers who work at places where enough personal space are not guaranteed or people with disabilities, delivery workers. So these kind of people, uh, vulnerable peoples are frost me the most. So I think we should uh, not let this memory just go away and keep discuss this issue. So yeah, this kind of thing uh, is most, uh, how to say, uh, strongest memory and experience that afflicts me the most. And thanks for sharing that. I mean, do you have some concern that there's a rush to, to get past those, those stories and push those, those memories down? I mean, in the United States, I've noticed um, people keep using this phrase, a new normal, a new normal, we've got to get used to. And, and I don't dispute that. I mean, we have to try to accommodate the reality in which we find ourselves. But a lot of times I worry that what that means is mm -hmm. letting go or pushing down the most troubling stories and the worst memories of it, when oftentimes those are the ones, my way of thinking, are the, are the very lessons we need to learn to avoid the worst things happening in the future. I don't know if there's a similar dynamic in Korea, but that's what you're pointing to, I think. Oh, yeah, you're right. Actually, uh, I hadn't really have a really closer uh, investigation through, are we really uh, trying hard to establish this memory as some kind of uh, institutional system or to prepare better uh, when another disaster comes? Uh, yeah, I, I'm just hoping that we we should keep discussing this issue, even though like the travels get normal again and the schools reopen and all the things, we still should uh, keep these memories of uh, leaving uh, vulnerable people out into the table so that, uh, yeah, um, I hope this discussion continues. Nansu, let me bring you in with the same question. If there's a, a moment you might point to defines this pandemic for you. Uh, so my memory is actually I try to look on some, well, at least some bright side of my experience because, uh, well, of course, it was very depressing in the, uh, in the outbreak stage because my family was staying in the city called Tegu where there was a first massive outbreak. But, you know, I couldn't do anything about it. But uh, the bright side is it actually gave me a chance to pursuing both work and research work So because everything went online. So there's no restrictions in terms of space. So I could work in Seoul and take classes online in the evening. So which wouldn't have been possible if I had to be there in person all the time. And speaking of working, um, personally, I think it was very interesting to observe that this pandemic could transform our some part of our lives, like particularly in terms of work, as I said, because people found a way to continue working without physically being in office. And I have read a blog about why do people like working from home? And the blogger's explanations were because it reduces our time for getting ready for the work and commuting to the work. And most important, importantly, people don't have to, uh, people can rest without being observed by people. So, but at the same time, it didn't feel like really working because I think somehow it involves like physical beings interactions. So it, uh, it somehow loosens our restrictions in like belonging to some space time, but at the same time, it also uh, take away uh, like existence or being involvement in certain process or certain places. I really appreciate that point. I mean, time saved just in commuting um, was something that people remarked upon a lot early on in the pandemic, um, which for most people means more time either sleeping mm -hmm. or with family. Uh, and those are both things that are in short supply in modern society. I mean, have you found it disorienting, Jansu, to do your work remotely? Um, I didn't find I didn't find it very disorienting because anyway, I can I'm able to focus. But at the same time, uh, it means your room is your place to rest, but at the same time, your place to work. So there is a mix of conceptualization of your room, so you can't really rest. 
but at the same time you can really work so it was a re uh, like a little mess so you really have to find yourself to balance within yeah i wonder you know how you how people mark that differentiation you know, they have to get up from the desk and go to the mm -hmm. other side of the room and so now the room is is a bedroom and then you come back to the desk and now the room is the office uh that's something i think people all around the world have had to get used to through this yeah exactly well let me just remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls and i'm talking with hyunsu chong and hyuna kyum today about their new research both are graduate students at the korea advanced institute of science and technology and Yansu, let me start with you. You've finished this thesis, a study of co-production for information sharing during COVID-19, focusing on the case of citizen-developed map services in South Korea. I'd like you just to explain in general kind of what the research is about. And I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with the case studies that you're talking about here because um, some of what you did your research on broke through and made international news, particularly early on in the in the pandemic. So tell us about it. So, uh, yes, thank you for the question. Uh, my master thesis is a study of co-production. What I meant by citizens and the government are working together for problem solving in terms of public services. For and particularly uh, public service, I meant information sharing during COVID-19. And this is a Korean case study on citizen-developed map services, so-called the Corona Map and Mask Map. But, uh, and the Corona Map is the map that shows the travel history of patients, and Mask Map is the map which shows uh, where you can buy face masks in particular pharmacies. And I studied on these how these maps influence COVID-19 response policies in South Korea. And I wanted to highlight the roles of citizens in early responses to COVID-19 outbreak in terms of active information sharing and their web service development. Because, uh, you know, Korea was credited with a successful uh, curve flattening, but I thought that we need to uh, dig deeper into how this could be possible because I could have, I, I observed some actions from citizen side. So I thought that I need to really study into that. And I aim to address this map service is an empirical example that drove a collaboration between the government and civil society. Yeah, I think I can wrap up my work like that. Right. Let me let me just follow up a little bit about the Corona map and the and the mask map. Can you say a little bit more about how those actually worked? Sorry, what they Can you say a little bit more about how they actually worked, how people interacted with them. Okay, so it's not uh, like you are interacting with the web services, but the developers are uh, developing the web service. And in for first, the Corona map is when there is uh, infected cases, like the KCDC, the control tower of uh, COVID nineteen management in Korea will uh, disclose the information on where the places that the patient visited. And from the information source, the developers are marking those places on the map because the KCDC only discloses the information as text. So people received as news, not knowing where exactly it is if you don't look up for yourself. So the Corona map is actually the service that you can find uh, places on the map where this patient has visited. And with this color coding, like there are little, little difference in colors in markings, you can find out how many time, how much time has been passed since their last visitation. And along with this map service, there is little statistics like a dashboard, like how many daily cases and how many like recovered deaths. Uh, so that is the basic description of the Corona map. And mask map is a service that is ended now, like it ended last July because uh, it first started with a face mask shortage in South Korea and people had a hard time uh, finding where to buy face masks. So the government tried to take a control of whole supplying of face masks and then they uh, disclosed the data on where to, uh, where, uh, which pharmacies has face mask stocks. So the developers used that data and made a map that can, if the user can click the pharmacy, it shows the range of how many remaining masks are there so people can uh, easily go to the master uh, pharmacies to buy face masks. And the mask supply was stabilized around uh, like last year, July. So it ended services by then. Both of those are fascinating to me. I mean, you know, the, the mask map is using open data as a way to solve basically a supply chain problem. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's an extension in some ways. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a private sector problem, although people might not be familiar that the Korean government had a very strong role to play in the provision of masks early in the pandemic. 
Mm-hmm. So you know, the mask map functions in that way. The Corona map uh, is a little harder for me to wrap my head around, and that's probably just because I was in the United States at that point in the pandemic. And the idea that you could actually geolocate where people p- and follow people's movements mm-hmm. as a public health intervention, um, first of all, would not have been, well, I, it could have been possible, anything would have been possible in the United States, but the it, pretty early on, it was clear government was not going to take on that role. But secondly, it introduces certain privacy concerns. So I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more on that aspect of the corona map, where people in South Korea worried about those kinds of disclosures or did they mostly welcome it as a tool to give themselves the kind of security that they were looking for to avoid infection? Uh, yeah, thank you for the very interesting and important question about this Corona map service. Um, so I, the reason that I chose to study this is because the nature of this information is on very personal thing rather than just general information that you can find on the news. But it's a very personal thing, but it is ex- even exempted from uh, protect- personal privacy protection under this COVID-19 circumstances. And then pe- and there was a need that people even want to visualize that information. So I was like, why do people want to have this information, this personal information, even as a visualized format? And then I started to ask people around, uh, the developers and service users. And in the first place, because people were not aware about what to do under this uh, unknown circumstance. First thing they could do is avoid the places. So that's why it got so much attention. And also because, the, as I said before, the KCDC was just telling the name of places for people had no idea where, which one it is. So I guess in the very early stage, there was a need for knowing this kind of uh, locations. But at the same time, when I interviewed the developers, they actually got complaints from uh, the business owners that I want my place to be erased on the map because it's impacting my business so much. But the one of the developers said, like, no, I have to keep this because for the sake of like public value, that's what he said. Like that was really interesting for me. Like it's public value that everybody has a right to know. But at the same time, it is violating someone's uh, right to be like to be forgotten. So there was always this dispute between the developers and uh, business owners and also patients because it's an easy target for witch hunting. And that was actually an issue during the early stage of pandemic because uh, the KCDC disclosed it so specifically, like from every time, every single hour. And then somehow uh, one of the patients were found out to be cheating someone. So it actually went very viral on online and it even became the witch hunting. So yeah, there was a huge discussion on whether this is privacy violating. But at the same time, I read the LA Times saying one of the uh, epidemiological investigators in LA said, I wish uh, LA or the state has similar system as South Korea for tracking this patients because we are like, we are so lost at tracking those patients. So uh, they were aware that this is private concern, but at the same time, to really uh, slow down the infection, it was very critical to know the infection route or transmission route. So I think there is a still like, no clear answer on like whether this is a really uh, personal privacy violation or is it really for the public value. But we will know at the end, I guess, but still, yeah, I think there is a like hard to draw the line between them. Just a quick follow up on on that. There's so many fascinating angles on this that um, you know the business owners, for example, mm-hmm. uh, do they have any kind of legal recourse? I mean, did any of them were they able to threaten um, legal action or to get some remedy from the courts uh, or public officials on on this? Or is it just considered open data? And if your shop happens to be in the pathway of someone who's infected, that's that's just life in the pandemic. Uh, I guess. From in terms of like legal framework, it has to be disclosed. I think this is a prior to like one's protecting uh, business, and then and uh, and then because there were so many like complaints from business owners, the KCDC changed the regulations to erase the place if it's past fourteen days. But in the very early stage of pandemic, uh, there was actually a requirement from the public that they want a more specified name of the name of the locations. And then it changed to like uh, erasing the places after 14 days. But uh, I thought it was 
very interesting to see the changes. Like in the very beginning, people wanted more specified information, but as the time goes by, people are like, please, like, I have right to be forgotten. So, and then by because of changing regulations, the developers also had to follow the rules. So either they changed the color codings, like this place has been visited more than nine hours, and then after 14 days, I erased all the data. Thank you for that explanation. Hyuna, I want to bring you in and um, just to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. And today I'm talking to Hyuna Kyum and Yansu Chong about their research in COVID. And uh, Hyuna, your thesis is titled Making Waste Acceptable and Invisible the COVID-19 Pandemic and Material Politics of Plastic Waste in South Korea. So um, same question to you. Can Set it out the landscape for us here. What is this study about? Uh, thank you for uh, giving me opportunity to explain uh, this really latest uh, latest research. Uh, the I think it would be good to introduce what motivated me to uh, do this study. Uh, it is because there were uh, two important time periods that interviewed my attention on plastic waste as a disaster because I was originally interested in waste in general, but I, uh, when I was uh, uh, trying to find my research topic. So there are two important time periods uh, affected me uh, uh, to study this topic. Uh, first one dates back to the time when I uh, just entered to the graduate school here at KAIST and it was spring 2019 and problems around plastic waste in East Asia were getting uh, attention and after China put the import ban on solid waste including plastic waste starting from early 2018. Uh, as China had been the largest uh, global importer of global plastic waste since 1992. The way plastic waste move around the world significantly got affected. Uh, thereafter, the major exporting countries which used to export waste plastic to China, such as the United States and Japan, uh, began to export waste plastic to other Asian countries, uh, including Korea. So thereafter, Korea experienced a series of important events, which are even called as recyclable waste crisis or plastic waste crisis. So uh, managing plastic waste properly became the center of waste management to the Korean government. And then the second time period uh, which drew my attention came uh, is the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, in the wake of the uh, pandemic, the dual nature of plastic surfaced out as life-saving materials as personal protective equipment, but also in the other hand, as life-threatening waste in the long-term period. So the stark contrast between the plastic and plastic waste stood out, especially in Korea, where the K response or K Pangyap in Korean, that narrative to secure public health gained international recognition. So uh, taking these two time periods together, it became really clear to me that the concept, concept of disaster uh, in my study will help me to conceptualize the reactions of the Korean government to the rapid and unsustainable situations relevant to plastic waste during the pandemic. And so with motivation in the early stage of my research, I learned that Korean governmental measures regulating disposable plastics were modified in very uh, many ways. Um, for example, new uses were mandated and some hard-won restrictions we started in 2018 and 19 that were relaxed a new waste stream of plastic medical waste were created. So I wanted to answer to the question of how does the COVID-19 pandemic as a disaster change the regulations and meaning around disposable plastic and plastic waste in Korea? Well, let me just ask you to say a little bit more about the intensification of plastic use uh, in Korea in the pandemic, what is that? What were you looking at? How would how should we imagine the sort of greater consumption of plastics during the pandemic? 
So what I wanted to focus throughout my study, uh, there were, at first, there were many kinds of plastic weight I was considering, but especially I uh, decided to focus on specific types of plastic waste. Uh, first one was plastic cups, and second was the plastic delivery packages, and sec uh, the third was the, uh, the uh, uh, sorry, I'm more, uh, vinyl gloves. And also, uh, these were these were the daily plastic waste. But also, I wanted to highlight the plastic medical waste containers. So my thesis revolves around these uh, two different types of plastic waste as a whole. And uh, why I wanted to point out this particular materiality of plastics were to figure out uh, by whom and for by which logics these specific types of plastic waste were. Uh, made available and more acceptable in uh, specific settings. So uh, this means that uh, the problem accumulated around the plastic waste has been aggravated in certain ways to uh, negotiate the meaning of plastic waste in Korean society. I think particularly uh, about the election that happened in, in Korea and the requirement of using vinyl gloves? People might remember seeing pictures of that in that time. What was that about? So uh, uh, we had uh, two elect uh, very important elections in 2020 and 2021. And those uh, at that two time periods of elections, the Korea, uh, the KCDC required citizens to uh, have the disposable vinyl gloves uh, in, uh, uh, when they're going to the voting places. And that was really interesting uh, analytical point for me because there were, uh, on the one hand, there were citizens uh, raising a uh, voice against using the uh, vinyl gloves because it would uh, significantly affect the environmental pollution. But then the KCDC requires citizens still, even with the, the citizens' uh, complaints about mandating those uses uh, because uh, vinyl gloves would be effective in containing the virus. But then there were even the uh, public health experts uh, making an official statement that those uh, vinyl, uh, vinyl gloves, uh, those kind of disposable plastic materials are not really effective in containing those uh, fomite, the surface transmission of virus. So even with this kind of scientific knowledge uh, that experts knowledge around the e efficacy of uh, vinyl gloves or disposable plastic materials, uh, Korea wanted to use that opportunity to uh, show the national uh, national capacity to uh, pursue that kind of democracy uh, in the middle of the pandemic. So I find it really interesting to uh, find that plastic coming to the uh, realm of national uh, capacity, uh, so-called as K-banya. There's so many fascinating aspects of that. I mean, you know, the, the part of me, maybe the more cynical part, thinks, well, this is hygiene theater at its worst, right? This is, you know, something that has no particular epidemiological efficacy, but it, the government performs it as a way to say, you know, this will be safe. But on the other hand, the perseverance to try to calm people who may have even Irrational. I mean, with COVID, it's hard to know, particularly early on, early on, what fears are rational or irrational. But to put democracy first and to say, no, we've got to get people to vote. And so if that means giving this form of intervention, we'll do it. I mean, I, I think, you know, that throughout the study and both of your studies, there, there are these, you know, big forces coming into, into collision. The problem of wanting to have open data coming into collision with concerns about privacy and stigmatization. The problem of, you know, plastic, as everyone knows, it's a, you know, something we want to minimize the use of for environmental quality, but it's pulled in as a life-saving intervention. And, and so these collisions are, are ones that you both, I think, have in very interesting ways sort of analyzed in, in real time. Hyunsu, let me come back to you. I have a kind of a bigger question about that. I mean, do you think this is a turning point for open data and what you call co-production? Do, do you think it's a turning point for that in, in Korea? I mean, we, will we look back at this COVID time as one in which 
some leaps were made in uh, the development of those kind of technologies or that conceptualization of data availability? Mm, uh, relating to that, there was a one quote that interviewees uh, uh, mentioned, like this is the time or the phase that open government data policy should change because uh, what open government data policy was like, the data is disclosed first. And then people have to find use of it. And if you don't find it useful, then you can't really use it. And then they actually mentioned that. And then now we start to question, like, how can we solve this uh, issue together with the public? So what they meant was um, when disclosing the open data, they hope that the government should be uh, more considerate on what to open and what to be shared so that can be used to more useful services rather than just opening random data. But uh, that, and what I meant by the considerate, I think that could also um, meant covering the privacy issues or like inclusiveness issues. So I guess this could be uh, one of the like time, uh, one of the points that could be like bring some changes to open data policy, I guess. Hyuna, what about in, in your case? I mean, is this a, a turning point for the way that Koreans will think about, about plastic use? Uh, I'm, I mean, you know, you, you're describing a situation in which there was a con governmental consensus that plastics use needed to be minimized before the pandemic. And then there's this rush to use these plastics in the way that you've described and to incinerate them, get rid of them, particularly the medical waste. Will we be going back uh, to a sort of pre-COVID mentality about minimizing plastic? Or, you know, what do you expect to be the larger outcome here? Right. Actually, uh it's really hard to predict, but I want to point out that uh, I think I can answer in this way. Uh, one of the challenges I met during uh, conducting this research was that sometimes people ask me like that. So what are you trying to say is that you want to prioritize the waste issues over the health issues? Because uh, it might be a nonsense because people are actually dying out because of the COVID-19 virus. So they were curious about uh, what I'm trying to, uh, uh, whether I'm trying to prioritize the environmental issues. But I think this challenge, the exact point I often got challenged from people can lead to the, uh, what I wanted to really say, uh, the main contribution of my study. What I want this uh, period uh, to act as is that to think about what we might experience this kind of situation where uh, uh, a disaster at one scale, the public health, uh, might mask the uh, obscure the disaster at another scale or the environment in this case. So as we uh, discussed, uh, compared to like acute disasters, like this kind of disaster, like plastic waste, constant like chronic uh, disasters, which have been accumulated for a long time are uh, easy for policymakers not to deal with, to take constant actions. So I want this moment to be a, a time that uh, to require policymakers for uh, uh, broadening broadening up uh, other uh, how to say other imaginaries and knowledges where a disaster at one scale does not obscure or like push back a disaster at another scale. So um, yeah, I think I this. A uh, specific moment of time can reveal that uh, multiple disasters always happen together and environment cannot be always uh, pushed back, but we should uh, try to think more uh, and discuss more about how to deal and at the same time. And I, I also see some positive uh, changes already taking place. Uh, for example, uh, the, uh, the delivery delivery companies like Pemin in Korea, it's one of the biggest uh, platform uh, uh, of delivery food services in Korea. And they're starting, ah, not Pemin, sorry, I, it was maybe Yu-Gi-Oh, I think. They're trying to mandate, uh, trying to uh, make it available that reus reusable containers, food containers, uh, can be used for the consumers. So I see a lot of uh, small but meaningful changes around uh, using the plastics. So I think we can uh, start thinking about making those two considerations taking place together. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and it's a researcher's roundtable today with Hyuna Kyum and Hyunsoo Jung. One of the things I love about the researcher's roundtable is I get to ask you more 
detailed questions about how you actually did the work. And Hyunsu, let me um, let me bring you in on this. So um, I want to underline. I mean, you're doing these master's theses um, in the middle of a pandemic, and we talked at the beginning about pandemic conditions and the various restrictions that are in place. And all graduate students and any researcher in any field around the world is going to be able to relate to you. <laughs> I think. Um, what were some of the challenges and, and in terms of particularly getting data, doing interviews, uh, you know, how did you approach it? I mean, I guess what I want to know is how you approached it generally, but also how did you have to change your approach because of the pandemic? Um, because my research topic is on COVID-19 situation, it's action research. That means you have to continue observing every single change happening to your life. Uh, it's not like it's ended there and it's not taking the past. So you have to pay attention to every single day. That was a little stressing me out that, like, you know, you don't know what this uh, <laughs> event of today might bring, con what kind of consequence later. I can, so, I can totally relate. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. So I was reading news every day, like all the news that I could find in Korea, find in Korea and also even like foreign press that what might be like, could be a lead to my thesis. So that was a little stressing me out. But at the same time, I was excited that I was wondering what would happen next. Like, you never know what's going to happen. And then my difficulty was having access to some key people, like the very developer of the service and some officials from the KCDC. I wanted to hear some opinions from the KCDC, but they were extremely, extremely busy and the KCDC is still busy. So <laughs> it was very hard to reach out to them. But at the same time, some people were very uh, kindly enough to share the resources they had. Like, and then the, some of the developers, they said like they are very happy that some people are doing this academic research to like reveal what they have done. So yeah, there was definitely a difficulty in accessing the data because it's going on because it's not in the past. But at the same time, that means people have more vivid recollections of what they have been doing. Were you able to notice any patterns that that might correlate as the virus, you know, goes through its various waves in Korea? Were you able to see any relationship between that and the willingness of your research subjects to talk? I mean, I think you were just now talking about the you know, the KCDC, they're busy all the time. So you can just basically assume it's going to be hard to reach them. But I've wondered about this. I've even thought about this with COVID calls. You know, I'm very reluctant to reach out to healthcare workers, for example, when they're, when there are periods of, you know, high hospitalization rates, high death rates. But there've been other lulls in the pandemic when I found that people were more willing um, to come on and talk. I don't know if you saw any relationship like that at all, or it's people were just hard to get across the board. Um, so developers were easier uh, in like last June-ish because people were having less attention to those kind of map services. And then one of, and then actually like most of the services stopped updating in last October, something like that. So I had the chance to uh, interview some of them during that time. And then they said they are actually happy to end the service because they have been so stressed out by P users because they have been keep complaining about why this place is, is not on the map and they say the updating is so late compared to like if you remember the complaints from the business owner why my right. place is on the map and the, some of the users were saying why this place is not on the map so they were so stressed out and then uh, because the pandemic unfolded a little longer than we expected and then people are having less uh, attention to the services so it was uh, easier to reach out to them but still the very uh, web service developer that I was looking for was still hard to reach out to because he had so many projects and uh, when I was working at this United Nations development program, uh, there was a, a trial to make a project with that developer to make a service available to the developing countries in Africa. So mm. he was really busy on collaborating with the government and even other foreign governments. So, yeah, I see those kind of trends, but not very much. <laughs> Hyuna, same question to you, just in terms of you know, what kind of... Uh, data were you trying to collect? And I'm particularly interested in, in who you were talking to and how you had to approach that with the pandemic. Oh, thank you for that really nice question. Uh, actually, I think Hyunsoo really nicely put about the, uh, said about the very uncertainties of doing uh, research about COVID during the COVID pandemic because we didn't know how this situation will unfold. And uh, we often also get 
got questions about. So when would you uh, end your data collecting point? And so it was really hard to uh, persuade myself. Oh, until when I should really uh, collect the data and uh, analyze it? So there was uh, a point of uh, difficulties uh, we met, and also in terms of uh, uh, accessing to people, some key people were actually uh, a little bit hard for me to reach out. Uh, uh, my thesis uh, uh, were written based on an empirical data uh, based on field visits and interviews with relevant experts, uh, um, like sanitation workers and medical practitioners, like nurses and doctors. So I wanted to interview a broad range of people who are actually uh, involved in the uh, process of um, using, discarding, and treating those uh, plastic waste. So. Um, in particular, yeah, there were a group of people uh, which were uh, more easier to get access, where, oh, whereas there were people who really didn't want to get interviewed. So at the first time when I tried to uh, approach medical incineration companies, workers, they were actually really uh, reluctant to talk to me because the uh, first one, they were really, really busy to get the uh, stable incineration of medical waste generated really, really a lot during the pandemic. But then they were also a little bit uh, dubious, uh, really thoughtful about the purpose of my research because they were a little bit afraid that I, uh, whether I'm really wanting to report this into the news media or something. So I think, I, so I uh, learned that, that this kind of attention uh, to their job, their working to, uh, was really, uh, how to say, unfamiliar to them. The attention brought on them, why uh, uh, the importance of the job they're doing, that kind of attention were may may, uh, maybe some a new thing for them. So in terms of approaching the sanitary workers uh, working in the medical waste incineration companies, it was a little bit hard for me. But yeah, luckily I, I uh, successfully interviewed two uh, workers from the incineration medical waste incineration companies. So it was really, uh, um, let's say, interesting experience for me to interview people in the private uh, sector, not only the uh, government officials in the uh, environmental sector. And you interviewed uh, a sanitation labor leader, didn't you? Uh, you're right. Yeah, actually. Tell us about him. Who is yeah. Yeah, on the uh, uh, and the contrast that medical waste incineration company workers were quite uh, hard for me to access. The leader that you just mentioned, the leader of uh, environmental facilities labor union leader, uh, he was really really happy and willing to meet me and uh, have a conversation with me because he wanted to. Uh, he have been trying to voice up again uh, voice up about the difficulties that sanitation workers especially in the uh, recyclable waste uh, screening facility and domestic waste uh, incineration uh, sites uh, he wanted to uh, speak about about the difficulties they are facing in the workplace so he wanted me to um, wanted me to echo that kind of difficulties taking place and especially the difficulties that were aggravated by the COVID-19 situation. Uh, so it was really um, uh, important uh, experience for me to actually meet him and went to the field visits with him. So, yeah. So, Hyunsu, what's next for this work for you? Are, are, is this a, a research track you're going to go forward with? Um, I think it will be interesting to conduct research further into this public-private partnership. Um, because of this experience of developing mask map, uh, I heard from uh, I heard from the news that there will be a platform, uh, public public-private pl partnership platform for disaster management in the future. So I think it will be interesting to see like how that partnership might look like and how this uh, COVID nineteen experience of partnership. Could have impacted this new partnerships. Yeah, I guess that will be the potentials for the future research. I guess. And if you were to get a few minutes with a policymaker, I mean, we all policymakers <laughs> should read your thesis. Let me say that first. <laughs> policymakers should read both of your theses. 
But let's say you just run into one on a train platform and she says, well, I'm not, I may not have time to read the thesis right now, but tell me what you, what's your main advice for me? What, what well, is that? My main advice would be the citizens are the key actors. They should be invited to your decision making process because there are efforts that you can not all, like all can be managed by the government. And there are definitely signs that cities can do better. So you have to acknowledge their roles and their existence. So you have to encourage uh, uh, their participation and you should build like environment for their participation. I think there's a, a really important and fascinating synchronicity with that and seven decades of disaster research. It indicates that um, there's an enormous amount of creativity and willingness of people to be uh, pro-social in disasters. And I know we've seen a lot of bad behavior in, pan in the pandemic, but we've also seen a lot of solidarity and a lot of desire of people to uh, improvise. And there's a lot of good disaster research that backs that up. So it strikes me that what you're calling for is, is in many ways a continuation of an application of knowledge that we've been collecting for a long time. But you've brought this quite unique lens to it in tracking this open data usage in the middle of the of the pandemic. I think that's advice that these policymakers should listen to. Yuna, um, this same policymaker turns around to the other side of the platform and you're standing there. Um, uh, people are going to get the wrong idea that Kai students are staking out policymakers at the at <laughs> station. We're, we're not, but they should be listening to you. So what what's your advice based on your study? Oh, that's a really important question. Uh, um, I, what the central, the key message I want to deliver to policymakers that are that uh, this kind of environmental impacts are, are not something that we can put aside for a while and uh, move it back to the table uh, when a certain disaster uh, is over. So it's something that we should. Uh, think always together that um, disaster at multiple scale, like public health and environment, that doesn't really clash or uh, or in the opposite, uh, folded opposite ways, but we should take it in, uh, in the same timeline. So that's the central message I want to deliver. Are you going to extend this research? Are you going forward in this, in this line of work, this, you know, discard studies, waste studies and the pandemic? Uh, uh, as I'm lucky enough to pursue the doctoral program here at KAIS in the Graduate School of MTP, uh if I continue to uh, 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 to expand this topic, this particular topic of uh, plastic waste during COVID-19, I want to uh, start seeing some uh, cases in other nations because this is certainly not just the story of Korea, but also other uh, other countries globally. So I want to take the, the comparative point of view, if I can, uh, to um, you know, what were some some key logics or decision-making points uh, that affected the, the regulations around plastic. So we're, we're just about out of time. Um, I warned you that I might do this, and I'm going to ask you. I think you both have your theses copies there at hand, right? Can you show us? Since you both have, have defended these quite recently, it might be nice to see them. Would you mind holding them up? I always ask authors to hold their books up if they have them. So these are for the screenshot photo. All the way through, like this. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. These are scholars to watch, everyone. Um, and these are important uh, findings. I'm really glad we got a chance to thank you. I've, 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 we've got it. And um, that's um, those are those are going to be I knew them when kind of photos, I think. Um, and so um, just a reminder uh, to everyone that um, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Today's a special COVID calls researchers roundtable, 5.30 p.m. Korea time on Friday, January 14th. I'd like you to join me for my next COVID calls episode, which will be episode number 400. And I'll give some announcements out about when that's going to take place. It'll, that'll be actually on Sunday evening, USA time at 7 p.m. Uh, and that will be 9 a.m. Korea time on Monday. And that'll be a kind of a retrospective episode where I'll talk about some of uh, the findings from the 400, 399 preceding COVID calls episodes. So please do join me for that. And I'd like once again to thank my guests, 
Hyun Soo Chong and Hyuna Kim for talking to me today about this important work. Congratulations on the work, and we look forward to, to seeing more of it from you in the future. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Thank you.